You may have noticed that I am wearing my nasty work boots today, and that was very intentional because they have steel toes, and all week my toes have been sore as I've been studying through our text for today. And so I thought I should probably wear my boots for some protection. But because of that, and because things have been falling on my toes, mainly the feet of Scripture, um, I wanted to try to help ease the pain, uh, and so I made cookies to pass out. And here in a moment, I'm going to have some people come help me pass those out, but there's a couple stipulations. One, they are completely good cookies, other than I don't bake very often, and I was in a hurry this morning because I keep having these idiotic ideas thinking, hey, it won't be bad to do it right before church in the morning, and nothing ever goes as smoothly as you want, and so it was kind of a rush, and so some of them have stuck together, but they still taste delicious. I bought them. Rob watched me open some of them up, most of them, I think. They just were broken off. They were the little square cookie things, so if there's a square on them, it's because they were the square cookie dough. You don't believe me? No, last time I made muffins. See, cookie, square. Delicious. But the biggest stipulation is you can't eat, taste, or take nibbles of them until the end of the sermon. You have to survive the pain of the sermon to have them. So if those guys will go ahead and help me pass those out. I did also supplement them with some of the cookies left over from last night because they were sticking really bad. But man, this cookie's delicious. I even put napkins in the basket so you could have a napkin. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You'll notice on the back of your bulletin, as you're grabbing cookies, and I think there should be plenty, so feel free to abide by the rule that if they stick together, it's only one. Unless it's the whole basket, and then there won't be enough. You'll notice on the back of the bulletin, the title this morning is Your Old Life, and I thought about trying to manipulate the theme music to This Old House and make it do a little intro of welcome to this episode of Your Old Life because that's the idea that was in mind when I put that title with it. Uh, Some of you have went through the DVD relationship study that we've done either in Sunday school or pre-marriage counseling called A Lifetime Love. It's led by a pastor named Randy Garris. He's from Joplin, Missouri. But he starts that study out with what he calls an autopsy of failed marriages. And he said, before we can take time to look at what makes a marriage successful, we need to look at an autopsy of failed marriages and why these marriages have failed. And so I say that to say that today is an autopsy of your old life. That that's our goal today is to look at why our lives were sinful, broken, and condemned. And really, I would say that it could even be an autopsy of our sinful, broken, condemned culture. Because the problem with our culture is that it is rampant with immorality. 
I'm going to pause because I meant to give a, also a PG disclaimer, but I don't see any students in here, so we're good. The problem with our culture is that it is rampant with immorality. Sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Relationships don't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. People can choose to become a new gender if they want. That's been in the news the past few weeks. People deciding that they are no longer a man, but they're really a woman, and so they're having operations to make that take effect. What's worse is that we have churches that promote this kind of behavior in the name of love and acceptance. N.T. Wright says this, he says, one knows of Christian communities where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony with each other that they tolerate flagrant immorality. See, it doesn't bother me as much to see the culture that doesn't follow God be immoral. It bothers me, and I'm concerned about it, but what bothers me far more is a church that calls itself by the name of Christ live in that same immorality. And I can remember it as long as I have, can remember. I remember people making those decisions. In fact, if the first couple I remember ever knowing that lived together that sticks out in my mind were two couples that, or two people that were retired. This really throws that whole, this generation has thrown this all to the wayside under the bus because, and this is where we're going to see problems in the future with the church and making decisions and taking stands. Because what I see coming is that the church is going to have to take a stand and they're going to have to take a stand that's going to risk and jeopardize their nonprofit tax exempt status. And what concerns me is this first couple that I remember living together were Christians. And the reason they lived together was because they didn't want to lose money benefits. Because if they were to get married, they would lose some of those benefits. And so I've already seen in my lifetime Christians who were mature, adult, senior citizen Christians choosing money over faithfulness to God. And so I'm concerned about the decisions that the church is going to make. But in Colossians 1, or Colossians 3, 1 through 11, we see Paul's autopsy. So rather than me just getting up here and standing on a soapbox and ranting and raving about all the things that bother me and step on my toes, let's look at what Paul has to say. I, I, I don't mind having my toes stepped on, and I don't really mind stepping on other people's toes as long as it's Scripture. Because we can't argue when Scripture steps on our toes. So that's why I'm going to step away from my soapbox, hopefully. Because I think Paul has a lot to, to contribute to the discussion about sexual sin. And as we read these 11 verses, I want you to pay attention to the verb tense a little bit, especially in these first two verses, because the verb tense is quite revealing for us. It's page 984 in your pew Bibles. Excuse me. Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died and your old life is hidden with Christ and God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a few facts that Paul sticks with here. And one of the things that's interesting is several people point out that Paul shifts here in chapter 3, the tone of the letter from theological instruction to practical application. And really, I don't know that that shift is completely there, but you definitely see that Paul has put that theological understanding there in order for us to understand what that means for our lives. What's interesting to me is that first phrase in verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ. Do you know why that's interesting? Flip back to chapter 2, verse 12. And see what Paul says. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Paul has already established that as Christians who have been immersed in the name of Christ, you have already been raised with him. This is one of those rhetorical understood ifs. Of course you have been raised with him because you've already been stated that you've been raised with him because you've been buried with him and raised with him. If you have been raised with him and it's understood to be true because he's already said that it's true. And then he says in verse 3, and these are where some of those tenses are interesting. He says, you have died to your old self, and your life is hidden in Christ. You see that shift from past tense? You have already, when you were buried with him, you died to your old self. And when you were raised with him, your life is hidden in him Already, This is not some future promise for heaven. God expects us to live this way now. This is not some standard that will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. This is the standard that God expects us to live at now because we have already died with him and been raised with him and are hidden in him. That's what Paul has spent two chapters explaining Christ is sufficient, Christ is preeminent, Christ is supreme. You have died with Christ, now you are raised with Christ. Live like it. Quit living like you're still living your dead life. All of that to say, 
If I were to summarize everything Paul says, I think what Paul is saying is that a life centered, a life with Jesus at the center has died to earthliness. A life with Jesus at the center has died, not is dying, not will die, has died to earthliness. Do you want to know if Jesus is at the center of your life? Then look at these earthly traits, because if they're still there, Jesus isn't at the center. Because Paul says that you no longer live like that. You have died in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. Now live like it. So the profile of earthliness. Some people break these down into two different lists of five, which doesn't work because there's a sixth trait. So they suggest that the first five are sexual sins and the last five are either vices of speech or it's an anger list. But those first five, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. I I want to explain those words a little bit because some of them sound the same to us. They, They sound repetitive. Sexual immorality is any sex that is outside of God's boundaries. Notice in this list, he doesn't name homosexuality specifically. I think that needs to be a wake-up call to the church. God is against all sexual immorality. Heterosexual immorality, homosexual immorality, bestiality, whatever the sexuality is, if it's not in his standards, he's against it. And he's against all of them equally. And maybe the church would have a little bit more room to stand on when it's preaching against homosexuality in the culture if it preached against heterosexual immorality in itself as much as it does with the world. All sexual immorality is to be gone. Impurity, which is contamination of character, this is N.T. Wright's definition, contamination of character affected by immoral behavior. As we practice immoral behavior and we let immoral behavior exist, we become impure. But we're not to be impure because we have been cleansed by Christ. And we're to live that life. Passion, he says, is uncontrolled sexual urges. Some translations translate that your youthful lust or something like that. But there's, I think that the the word passion is used because it captures that passion a little bit more. It's not just some passing lust of the youth. There's a passionate desire for something that is not right. And then evil desire, I would say this was the first stages of immorality. The the evil desire is those fantasies or those mental immorality where people say, well, I haven't done anything wrong because I haven't touched. You can look but not touch. No, Paul says, evil desire, get rid of it. You cannot look but not touch. That's just as wrong. And covetousness. Unchecked hunger for physical pleasure is what Wright says. And see, this is one of those that I have trouble with because I think that there is that sexual connotation because it's paired with all of these sexual sins. And he identifies, if you want to say that you don't practice idolatry, you know those Ten Commandments that we're very proud of? Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. 
Don't worship idols. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. When you covet what is not yours, whether it be your neighbor's wife or donkey or car or house, you are making that an idol and you are breaking one of the Ten Commandments. See why I wore my boots today? I texted a friend the other day and said, this really isn't fun to study through. Then he goes on. And he starts to identify some others, like anger. A continuous, again, this is N.T. right, a continuous state of smoldering or seething hatred. One of the things that I remember once, one time, is that not general enough? I remember a sawmill catching fire and they had that big pile of sawdust and they left because the fire was contained but all of a sudden a few days later that fire erupted again because it was smoldering in that pile of sawdust. That's the kind of anger Paul's talking about here where on the surface everything looks okay But under the surface, it's just smoldering and waiting to explode and erupt in wrath. Angry words and deeds that come out because of the anger that we haven't taken care of, the anger inside that we have left unchecked and it comes out in wrath as we say hateful things and we do hateful things to other people. Maliciously, with malice, that evil intended to cause hurt. Those things that we say just because we know that it'll put a little bit of salt in the wound. And we say them because we want to hurt people. Not that we would ever do that, but supposing that someone might, Paul says those aren't to be in the church. Slander, this is a word that I think is interesting because you may not understand the word that's underneath there. I didn't realize it till this week. The root word is blasphemeo. It's the same word as blasphemy and blaspheme. He says don't blaspheme each other. You're not to blaspheme God. You're not to say things against God. You're not to do that against each other. Why? Because you bear the image of God. And anytime I speak something slanderous against you, I am slandering an image bearer of God. And you know who isn't an image bearer of God? Nobody. Republicans, Democrats, Muslims, Hindus, homosexuals, transgenders, all of them bear the image of God. When you slander them, you are slandering the image of God. Speak that is intended to harm one's reputation. Slander. And lastly, in this list, obscene talk. Words whose foul association or their abusive intent contaminate both the speaker and the hearer. Because the reality is, when we hear those things, we can't unhear them any more than the person that said them can unsay them. 
whether it be a foul, because this is another one of those where the church gets on its high horse and says, well, I have never said anything profane. I would never say such a thing. But it's not just the foul association, it's the abusive intent. Words that are intended to harm are obscene. Because as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we're to encourage each other, not tear each other down. And then he wraps it up with do not lie to each other. See, that's the sixth one on this list of speech, which is why it's not two lists of five. I think do not lie is pretty blunt. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Never lie. In fact, that's one of the things discussed in that marriage counseling study that we do is when your wife says, hey, how's this dress look? If you don't like the dress, you don't say that it looks good because it removes trust. Because he says what the issue is, is your wife comes and you're going to a banquet that's for her, you don't really care, you're going because you love her and you want to be supportive. If it was up to you, you would wear the most comfortable pair of holy jeans you have, but you're dressing up because she wants you to. So when she says, does this make me look okay? Or good, or however it's asked. Do I look nice? And you're like, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care. Because you don't care, you say yes. But she hears, yes. And then two weeks later, you're going to something that's a banquet for you and you're getting dressed up and you're excited because you're proud of what you've accomplished. And she comes down in the same outfit thinking, hey, he really liked the way I looked in this. And she shows up and you say, is that what you're wearing? And she's hurt because you have let her down because you let her leave in something that you didn't think looked nice. But because you didn't care, you lied to her and said it was fine. Do not lie. And then in verse 11, I think there's some especially helpful things to our culture here. Because Paul points out that in God's kingdom, there is no room for prejudice. There is no room for prejudice in God's kingdom, whether it's political, social, economic, or racial prejudice. Those are the classifications that are listed there. But they're in their time, not in ours. Something that may be beneficial for you to do later today is rewrite, rewrite, rewrite Colossians 3.11 in today's language. Maybe it would say something like this. In God's kingdom, there is not American and not American. There is not American and illegal immigrant. There is not white or black. There is not white collar and blue collar. Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, but Christ is all and in all. I don't know. That's your assignment for later today. Rewrite that in today's language in a way that just crushes your toes. But jump back to verse 5 for a minute. Before these two lists... See what Paul says there? He says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sorry. Put to death what is earthly in you. 
Because a life with Jesus at the center has died to earthliness. One of the dictionaries says that this word has the idea of ceasing completely from activity with the implication of extreme measures taken to guarantee such cessation. To cease completely with the implication of taking whatever measure is necessary to make sure that that practice, whatever list that is that you fall into, taking extreme measure to make sure that those things are ceased. And so maybe like Kirk Cameron and Fireproof, that means you take your computer outside and you bash it in with a baseball bat. We talked about this yesterday, and I was laughing last night because I realized that it's been a really long time since I've talked about Grossberger in a sermon. Some of you who have been here for a few years know that I used to reference Grossberger a lot. It's been probably close to 18 months since I've been at Grossberger. Because just like an alcoholic avoids the bar, I'm avoiding Grossberger because I know I won't go in and not order an American special triple cheeseburger with a huge bag of fries. You take whatever measure is necessary to make sure you cease those sinful activities and put them to death. Because if we are to seek and set our minds on the things that are above, verses 1 and 2, we must put earthliness to death. We cannot seek these things on these lists. We cannot pursue earthliness simultaneously with pursuing the things that are above. We will love one and hate the other, or we will serve one and be devoted to the other, and we will serve one and despise the other. You cannot seek God and your own pleasure. It doesn't happen. You will end up despising your faith because you'll be like, why doesn't God want me to be happy? Why is God putting these shackles on me? If God loved me, he would want me to be happy. I referenced that quote from N.T. Wright earlier at the very beginning that of Christian communities where they're so concerned with living in untroubled harmony that they tolerate flagrant immorality. Remember that? There was an ellipsis in there. You're going to see the full quote now. Many Christians tend to concentrate on one list or the other, the sexual list or the speech list. One knows of Christian communities that would be appalled at the slightest sexual irregularity but which are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting, gossip, and bad temper. And conversely, of others, where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony with each other that they tolerate flagrant immorality. You see, the problem is there are a lot of churches that stand up and say, you've got to love, you've got to love, you've got to love. And in the name of love and unity, they put all moral standards aside. But then there are other churches that get up and they start pounding on their sexual morality pulpits and saying, we've got to fight this, we've got to fight this, we've got to fight this, we've got to fight this. But they are seedbeds for gossip and maliciousness and backbiting and bad tempers. N.T. Wright goes on to say this, the gospel, however, leaves no room for behavior of either sort the gospel condemns both behaviors equally 
And I would say no matter which of those you fall into, it tends to be like those Pharisees that were praying. And they were standing there saying, God, thank you so much for allowing me to be a loving person that accepts people as they are, and I'm not like one of those judgmental types. And then the other group of Pharisees is saying, God, thank you so much for making me sexually pure, and I hold to all your sexual standards, and I'm not like them, even though I slander and talk meanly against people, and I say bad things, and I lie, and I abuse people, and I'm not loving, and I'm bitter, and I'm angry, and I'm slanderous and malicious and gossipy. And Paul makes it clear that in the gospel, there is not room for either behavior. Both sets of behaviors are equally condemned in this text. Since you have already died and have been raised with Christ, your life is hidden in him. And since you are being renewed in the image of your creator, I love verse 10 of Colossians 3. It says, you are being renewed in the image of your creator as you grow in knowledge of him. And remember, who is your creator? Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 16. Through him all things were created. As you grow in your knowledge of God, what Paul talks about in chapter 1, you grow in the image of your creator, which is restoring all things to the way it was supposed to be because in Genesis 1.23, I think, Genesis 1.20 something, I always get that last number wrong. We were created in the image of God and then we went and marred it with sin and nastiness. And Paul says you're buried with him, you're raised with him, and now you're being renewed in his image, being moved back to where you were created to be as you were intended to be. And so since you've died with him and you've been raised with him and your life is hidden in him and since you're being renewed in the image of Christ, you need to identify and exterminate those earthly tendencies that are within you. Because the problem is all of us have at least one or two or 11 of those in us somewhere. The list was 11 long, by the way. We have to identify those and put them to death because there is no room in the kingdom of God for such behavior because that's not the image of Christ. You cannot bear the image of Christ effectively and live in those ways. Thomas Akempis, I found this, I read this a couple years ago and it was one of those things that I just read and for some reason, it like kicked me in the face and I'm like, why is it that this is so hard to understand? Why didn't I think of this? Why did I have to write, read some old dead Catholic guy to understand this? He said temptations are more easily overcome if they are never allowed to enter our minds. Duh! Meet them at the door as soon as they knock and do not let them in. One simple thought can enter the mind and start the process. The longer we let them overcome us, the weaker we become and the stronger the enemy against us. I know a lot of you love to garden and with gardening comes weeding. When is it easier to pull the weed? When it's a little seedling on the ground or when it's a big nasty thistle plant that you have to get stabbed by? Anybody? 
when it's little. But why is it that we don't seem to do that with sin? We seem to want to let it wait and fester until it blows up in a nasty cancer of our soul. And then we're like, oh, I guess I should have dealt with that. Pull out your cookies. Did anybody cheat? Anybody willing to admit that you cheated? I didn't see anybody cheat. I was hoping I would. (laughs) Anybody? Nobody? Okay. Here was the point of the cookie. It is a lot easier with temptation for us to remove it and not see it to avoid it than it is to have it sitting in front of our face. Because I can guarantee you, if you would have sat there like this with the cookie, hmm? In your napkin. (laughs) You didn't have to take a cookie. But if we would have sat with there with the cookies like this, it'd been impossible to not eat them. But that's what we do with sin. That's why I avoid gross burger. Because I'm not going to sit there and put this big, best tasting cheeseburger I've ever had in front of my face and say, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. There have been studies, I haven't read them. I just, in fact, at VBS last year, I was talking to Scott Shaw in the kitchen, and he said he had read a study where they talked about the amount of emotional energy it takes for somebody who is not eating something to avoid eating it when it's in front of them. So you're trying to eat healthier and you have a a bucket of candy on your desk for people. If you simply hide that where it's out of sight, it's a lot easier to not eat. Rather than focusing and saying, I can't eat this, I can't eat this, I can't eat this, I can't eat this. And the point of that was that temptations are easily overcome more easily overcome if we get them out of our sight and we're not focused on them and we're not completely surrounding ourselves in them. There's a church down in Kentucky that they have a strip club ministry and they try to reach out to the women who work there. Guess what? None of the guys sign up for that because they don't need that temptation in their lives. It's the women who do that. Because they're not tempted by it. And if they are, they sit with the guys and go do something else. With sex, it is not up to us to decide when or who it's acceptable to have sex with. God sets those standards. And with anger and forgiveness, it's not up to us to decide who deserves to be loved, who deserves for us to not be angry with them, who deserves for us not to slander them. God, who allowed his son to die on the cross, made that decision already. And so the question that now is presented is what extreme measures do you need to take to eliminate those characteristics from your life? To get rid of the earthliness that is still a seedling or a sapling or a full-blown oak tree that needs to be chopped down. Are you willing to make those necessary sacrifices? Because the problem that I've found is so often we can easily identify what the problem is. And sometimes we say, well, I've prayed that God would take it away and I prayed that God would make a difference. I prayed that God would help me get healthy. But I kept walking into Grossberger. You have to be willing to make those difficult decisions to do what is necessary in order to allow God to renew you in the image of his son. A life 
With Jesus at the center has died to earthliness. And that is what we are called to. The question is, are you willing to do what it takes? Or do you just try to skate by? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us enough to allow your son to die so that we can have forgiveness for our earthliness. We thank you that you have promised us that we have died with him and we have been raised with him already and the future fulfillment of that. I thank you for cookies as a reward for making it through a tough topic. I thank you for heaven as a reward for making it through a tough life. That we can understand that those necessary decisions and sacrifices that we have to make pale in comparison with eternity with you. May we have that perspective so that we can keep our eyes focused on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and pursue him and leave earthliness behind us. I pray that every day we would be more renewed in the image of Christ than we were the day before. And that when people see us every day, they would see Jesus in us more than they have before and that they would be drawn to you because of the love that comes through us. May we understand that money doesn't circumvent your standards and that happiness doesn't circumvent your standards, that you have called us to maturity and perfection and holiness. Give us the willingness and the desire to sacrifice and pursue that life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.